Let's turn now to our second reading, Hebrews chapter 13, and I'd like to look at verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, to the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you've heard, I suppose, down through the years how there has always been controversy about the authorship of these epistles. Some have ascribed it to Paul, others to Luke, some to Barnabas, and others to Apollos. But the weight of opinion, at least amongst Reformed divines, has always been in favour of Pauline authorship. And that's the way we have always recognised it. The important thing is this, friends. The epistle belongs to the canon of Scripture, and that makes everything final. It is part of the canon, just the same as any of the other books of the Bible. Now, this epistle was written to Hebrew Christians, and these Hebrew Christians were in constant danger of lapsing into, into um, Judaism. They were paying far too much attention to ceremonies, ceremonies that had been already uh, cancelled, they had come to an end on account of Christ's atonement. Uh, nevertheless, these people were adhering to them. And what the writer does here is to show the preeminence of the new administration of the covenant of grace compared with the old administration of it. Indeed, the, compa the comparison is such that the new administration is as if it's a completely new covenant altogether but he ensures that there is no division in the minds of the people regarding the covenant of grace. We have people to this day, and I'm talking about people who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they regard the Old Testament as having had a different covenant from the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have a covenant of shadows, in the New Testament, you've got the same covenant, but you're dealing with the substance. And indeed, when you consider the administration of it in the Old Testament and all the complexities associated with it, it is in stark contrast to the simplicity of its administration in the New Testament. The word, sacrament, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect, for salvation. So there are, there are not two covenants. You have the one covenant with the two administrations. So this is the aim then of the apostle here to show the importance and the preeminence of the new administration of the covenant of grace and yet ensuring that they are not confused in their mind that we're dealing with two separate covenants but with the one covenant. And then above all else, 
It brings before them how superior Christ is even to the prophets. And the prophets, they were great men. They were exceedingly great, and yet their greatness pales into insignificance compared with the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So today then I want to consider four points. First of all, I want to consider what is us, what, what, how God is described here as the God of peace. And secondly, what is ascribed to him, the bringing of Christ again from the dead. And the third thing I want to look at are those things that are associated with Christ, greatness and the blood of the covenant. And lastly, the exhortation to these believers to be perfect and also with reference to good works. So first of all, then, let us consider how God is here described as the God of peace. Now, in uh, Romans chapter 15 and 20, we have these words, the God of peace shall be with you. And in that same epistle, chapter 16 and verse 20, the God of peace shall bruise shortly Satan under your feet. And in Philippians 4 and 9, 9 those things which ye have learned and received and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, the, the God of peace sanctify you whole. These are only just four passages that I have selected. God then is the God of peace. But when Adam sinned, Adam brought confusion into the whole world, into the experience of mankind, because he was their representative. And when he fell, all those he represented fell with him. Now, some people say, you know, that it's rather unfair that somebody had acted on their part and because of what he did, they have to suffer the consequences. But the truth of the matter is, friends, human nature was on trial. And supposing any one of us had been in the place of Adam, that is precisely what we would have done as well. God created Adam with the power not to sin. That's not the same as not being able to sin. But the, the power not to sin. And by his choice, he chose to sin. It was all down to an act of his will. And so the rest of mankind had to bear the consequences of what he did. Now, when God created Adam... Although he was sinless, it didn't mean that he had an immortal body. For him as a sinless being to live, he had to eat, he had to breathe. But if he had survived his probationary period, we believe that his body would have undergone a change and that his body would then have become immortal. Now, when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ... He also had a body. He had a human nature. And human body and so wasn't a human person. He was a divine person. He was a human being. And that human being was united to the divine person. 
So he also had a body. And he was sinless. And being sinless, he could never have died through nat nat natural causes. And the only way he could die was by being willing to lay down his life, plus the instru cruel instruments that were required in order to take his life away. So that his body, though he was sinless, his body was mortal. But then, of course, when he rose from the grave, he was the first to rise from the grave with an immortal body. Lazarus didn't have an immortal body, nor the widow's son, nor Jairus' daughter. They rose with the same body that will return to the earth again. But he is the first fruits from the dead. Now, friends, when two people fall out, to reconcile them, there have to be concessions by each party. But there could never be concessions on the part of man in order to be reconciled to God. He was separated from God forever if God had not intervened. And we see, therefore, the wisdom of God in what he did. It's so easy for us to, see, to read the word that Christ is the power and the wisdom of God and just move on. There's a lot in these words. He's the power and the wisdom of God. How could an unchangeable, holy God ever be reconciled to sinful man? How could it be done unless it was done at the expense of his own attributes, which God would never do? And yet God devised a way whereby all his attributes would be honoured and he would be reconciled to sinners. And that is where we see the wisdom and the power of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. From eternity, God had promised to give him a body, a body and a soul. And that one person, you have a nature that could suffer and die, and a nature that couldn't suffer and die. All united to the one person, and everything predicated of the person, not of the natures. The wonders of it all, friends. And this is what God did. He sent his own son into this world and he suffered and died on behalf of those the Father had given him from eternity. And God was satisfied. God was propitiated. And just that just means God was appeased. And God was reconciled to those given to him. He was the God of peace. And the God of peace could now be reconciled to sinful men and women. <clears throat> Let us leave then that first point, then move on to our second point. And that is what is here attributed to God. And that is, of course, the raising of Christ from the dead. Now you have also the raising of Christ from the attributed to himself. So how can we reconcile these two matters? Well, first of all, we've got to uh, appreciate that all sins are committed against God. They're not committed against their fellow creatures. Yes, they get involved. They are committed against God. God is the lawgiver. And they are committed against God. And therefore, friends, <coughs> God is the offended party. God is the one who provided a saviour. And Christ came and he was obedient even unto death. Never at one point did he depart from doing the Father's will. 
he had pleasure in doing the Father's will. And it was the Father's will that he would suffer and die and be under the power of death for a time. And there he was the representative. Adam was the representative or, or the, the federal head of mankind. Jesus Christ was the representative or the federal head of all those the Father had given to him in eternity. And just like Adam, whatever Adam did, that all his descendants would do. Whatever Christ would do, all the people given to him would do. With Adam, he sinned and he imputed guilt to all his descendants. With Christ, he fulfilled the law and made it honorable and imputes righteousness to all those that were given to him from eternity. So we see then in the, in the resurrection of Christ, we have there the evidence that God was propitiated, that the anger of God was turned away forever, that the justice of God was satisfied to the letter, and Christ, to have held Christ under the power of death longer would have been unjust. He had acquitted himself, he had fulfilled the law and made it honourable, and therefore he had to be discharged on the third day from the power of death. So that is why it is attributed in the first place to Christ, to, to God the Father. But secondly, it is also attributed to Christ. John chapter 10 and verse 18. I have power to lay it down. That's my life. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. You see, Christ could not have been put to death unless he was willing to do so. You study the life of Christ in the four accounts we have, the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And there were many occasions when his life was in danger. And it was his duty to escape from that danger. Because he had to fulfill everything the Father had given him to do. There are times he used the crowd to shield him. There are times he left it to the Father to control the, 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 the heart and the minds of his opponents. There were other occasions and he took cognizance of the danger and he took another course because he had to fulfill everything the Father had given him to do. And when it eventually came to being crucified, what happened? According to the account John has, when they came to arrest him, they fell backward. They were powerless. They couldn't have arrested him unless he had been willing to be arrested. And he was, because everything had been fulfilled. And he knew now the time had come for him to be crucified. And so, friends, he had the power to lay it down. Christ didn't die because he had reached the limits of human endurance. That's not why he died. Christ's voluntariness, which started in the covenant of redemption eternity, was never impeached during his time in the state of humiliation. Not even when he was on the cross was it impeached. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. No man takes it from me. And remember one word. First of all, the soldiers were sent to break the bones of the two men and Christ to hasten their death, you see. And used, used clubs and bars of iron to do so. And when it came to Christ, he was already dead. And when word was brought back to Pilate, he was already a Pilate marvel. 
Little wonder he marvelled that he was dead so soon because he had voluntarily laid down his life. So the one who had the power to lay down his life had also the power to take it up again. And that is, friends, what he did. People fail to appreciate the importance of the resurrection. There are people who are genuine believers, or at least they make that profession, and they don't believe in the physical resurrection. They don't realize how flawed their, their profession is. They don't realize that it's a doctrinal contradiction. How can you have a spiritual resurrection if Christ never rose from the dead? And if you're going to have a spiritual resurrection, you must also have a physical resurrection. And if you haven't got a physical resurrection, then the mystical body of Christ is deformed. All you have are souls in heaven, but the body is still in the ground. That's not the redemption that Christ purchased. He came to purchase the redemption of the passion, and the passion constitutes body and soul. So the soul, the body must also be united with the soul before redemption is complete and before the mystical body is complete without a blemish whatsoever that will happen on the last day. Let's leave that second point there. And then move on to the third point, friends, and that is what is associated with Christ here. Greatness and the blood of the covenant. First of all, greatness. Remember that he was God and man in two distinct natures and the one person forever. So as God, he's omniscient. Omniscient, friends. And the Bible uses language to accommodate us that God searches us out and so on. God doesn't need to search anybody out. God's knowledge was, as an omniscient God, God's knowledge was complete from eternity. Nothing has ever been added to it. Nothing. Nothing can be added to God's knowledge. It is complete. It is perfect. And know that, although the psalmist says, O Lord, thou hast me searched and known. Thou knowest my sitting down and rising. All my thoughts are far to the unknown. And, and then he goes on, though he made his bed, though, though, though he ascended up to heaven, or made his bed in hell, or took the wings of the morning, uh, and went to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, Lord, shall thy hand lead me, thy hand shall uphold me. Is only employing their language to accommodate the human being, and the Bible is full of that. But strictly speaking, the knowledge of God is complete and perfect, nothing can be added to it. So that belongs to him. As God. And then he is omnipresent. He's omnipresent because of his immensity. And his immensity is such that the universe cannot contain him. How great he is, our God. The universe can't contain him, friends. And that shows how immense he is. And it's because of his immensity that he is omnipresent. No place for reason. Adam and me foolishly thought they could hide from God. That's what sin does. It brings God down to the level of the creature. It insults God. There's no hiding from God. You're here today and you're still in your sins. You can't hide your sins from God. You can hide them from man. 
And you can spend the rest of your days hiding them from under, not hidden from God. And the time is coming when you must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account to him, for he already knows But you are there to be judged. So there's no hiding, there's no escaping from God. He's omnipresent. And then, of course, he's omnipotent. There's no limits to the power of God. The only thing God cannot do is he cannot deny himself. To deny himself would be a contradiction. He's just all power on heaven and earth belongs to Christ. So that everything is subject to Christ except the Godhead. Everything else is. So there we see then the power that belongs to him as God. And as God, he is the creator of all things. Again, in Genesis, we're told in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the same as in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made was made. We haven't got a contradiction there. What that means is that God created all things through the Son. So he's creator of all things. What power, mightiness, belongs to him. He is a creator. Then when we consider, friends, the greatness of his love, there's no love ever like the love of Christ. The greatness of his love. Listen to what he says there in John 17, I think it's 24 and 25. There was love me before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say that the love with which thou loved me may be in them and I in them. The wonder, the wonders of his love. He loved his people with an everlasting. He was prepared to go through every kind of sorrow and he went through a notion of sorrow, something that we'll never be able to comprehend in order to rescue every one of them from sin and to bring them eventually spotless there before the Father. This is the love that will not let you go and never let you go, friends. It doesn't matter how weak we are. It doesn't matter how feeble we are. It doesn't matter how we could be plagued with doubts and fears. It doesn't matter how Satan assaults us. This love will never let you go. It's not the hold we have of him. By our act of faith, it's the hold that he has of us. And that hold is eternal. They were given to him in eternity. They're precious to him. And he loves them. Greater love than this has no man, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. And here, my friends, if you do whatsoever, I command you. So you're here today, and you take pleasure in rendering obedience to God. A person that hasn't got pleasure in rendering obedience to God has never come to a saving knowledge of Christ. To do thy will, we know originally said of Christ, I take delight. But surely the saints also take delight in doing the will of God. When are you at your happiest? Well, you've got to speak for yourself. I'm at my happiest when I have the face of God shining upon me. There's nothing in the whole world that could replace that. doesn't matter what my circumstances are. His face shining upon me. My soul being assured that I am his. I'm at my happiest. And when God frowns, I feel most miserable. And all you have to do is go to the book of Psalms. And what I experience, you'll find them in the experiences 
of the psalmist as well. So there's the greatness, therefore, of the love of God. There's the great, there's the greatness of his sufferings, friends. We're inclined to think of the physical sufferings of Christ, and we must never, for one moment, in the value of the physical sufferings of Christ. But what we are, uh, what we're inclined to forget is, it was God who afflicted him. It was God, friends, who afflicted him. There were these wicked men. And what they did, they did it from the depth of their depraved heart. But nothing can happen in the universe without the permission of God. Nothing. God controls everybody, searches the sovereignty of God. And these wicked men couldn't have lifted their voice against them unless God had permitted God had permitted it. This is going to be part of his sufferings. But God, in the purpose, the one that afflicted him. We read there in Psalm, not Psalm, but the Isaiah 53. And you saw for yourselves what was said there. That it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. And then you turn to Zechariah chapter uh, 13. Uh, and there the command is given to the sword, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. And what the sword commanded to smite the shepherd. It was the hand of God, friends, that smote him. And there's a side to Christ's suffering that we'll never understand. What do we understand of the three hours of darkness on the cross? We don't understand a thing about it. Culminating in words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And although as the Son of God incarnate, it couldn't be forsaken, nevertheless, the experience he had there was a real experience of what it's like to be forsaken. And that was part of what he had to go through in being the substitute or the representative of the people, because they would have been forsaken. They have been cast forever from the presence of God at the end of life's journey. So he, the substitute, had to undergo all these experiences. We'll never, friends, be able... It's all right to talk about the sufferings of Christ. We will never be able to understand what he went through. Just in a very small measure, we know some. if we are being persecuted for something, are being reproached, how it wounds us. Think of now how the Saviour was one, the greatness of his suffering. Uh, and such sufferings was needed. Then we have the greatness of, of his obedience. He was obedient unto death. Fulfilled. Remember the garden when he prayed momentarily that this cup would pass by me. You see, there were occasions when his humanity was left by itself, only just for a moment. And there you see one of those moments. His, without his humanity being sustained by his divinity, he would have collapsed under the burden. He, he, wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have survived from it. He would have been crushed by it. But it was sustained by the union between the two natures. So there were those moments when momentarily it was suspended and he felt overwhelmed. But this cup would pass by. And then the next moment is restored. Not my will, but thine be done. You see, he was given an insight to all the bitter things that were in that cup. 
and he found it overwhelming. And that was necessary so that it would be a voluntary act on his part, taking the cup. He didn't take it blindly, not knowing what was in it. He knew what was in it. And he took it and was able to say, to do thy will, I take delight, although my God that art. So the greatness of his salvation, it saves to the uttermost. And then we have the blood of the covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, none whatsoever. And he sealed it with his own. The blood represents the life that was sacrificed. And nothing but the shedding of his whole blood would do. When we look at the Old Testament, we see so much sprinkling going on there. And, and only a portion of the sacrificed blood is sprinkled, but the sprinkling represents the whole of that blood that was shed. And that is how it is, friends, to this day, in the application of the redemption that he has purchased. So that takes us then to our final point, and that's the exhortation to these believers to be perfect, and also their good works is brought into it. Now, when we employ the word perfect in our common usage of it, we mean what is flawless. So we know that it cannot be taken immediately here, uh, initially, to mean that which is flawless. You see, you get some people and they think, the moment you are justified by faith, you're ready for glory. Now that is not correct, friends. The only way you're ready for glory, the moment you're justified, is if God has decreed that you should be taken to glory at that very moment. And if he has, then you have a combination of justification, adoption, and sanctification, followed immediately by glorification. That's the exception to the rule. In normal circumstances, a time factor between the point of justification and sanctification. In justification, we have the guilt removed by the blood of Christ. In sanctification, we have the pollution of sin removed by the Holy Spirit. They're two different things, and yet they are united. So the word here is not to be taken to mean that which is flawless. It means really to prepare <coughs> with completion in view. And that's exactly what we have in the work of sanctification. It is moving towards completion. And at the point of death, we are complete. What the short Catholic says, the souls of believers at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, their bodies being still united to Christ, to rest in their graves until the resurrection. And every believer here will be made perfect in holiness. Day by day, <clears throat> we should become dead to the things of this world and more alive to God. We don't know the moment we're going to be called out of this world. But one thing is certain, friends, none of God's people be called out of this world until they have been made perfect. And that will happen at the moment of death. And that takes us to a final point in the exhortation he gives here. I'll just read it again in verse 20. Make you perfect in every, verse 21, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in sight to Jesus Christ, of whom be glory forever. Amen. 
Now, the first thing we have to keep in mind is that <clears throat> no work is acceptable to God but that which accords with the preceptive will of God. And the person must be accepted before the work is accepted. That makes sense. If you go back to Genesis, you find Abel there, he came with his offering. And what was written, that God had respect for Abel and his offering. First of all, the person, and then the work. And then you have it in reverse order when you see what follows. That God had no respect for Cain, nor for his offering. So the person must first of all find acceptance before the work is acceptable. First, we must be justified by faith. Before, before our works can be regarded as good works, friends. So this is so important. And after all, how do we know that we are a branch of the vine by the fruit we bear, by the good works that are evident in our lives? And before I close, I wouldn't want anybody present here to misunderstand me. That this gives lies to people just doesn't matter how you live. When your passion is not, when your passion is not found acceptance of God, then your works don't matter. That is not true at all. Every human being in this world is under obligation to obey the law of God. That can't save their souls, but there is an obligation to render obedience to it. And if they don't render obedience to it, then they bear the consequences. We are all exhorted to be kind to one another to be good citizens, to be law-abiding, to do what is good. But above all else, it brings this to us, that nobody can be justified by the deeds of the law. It shows how impoverished we are spiritually. And the law should be our schoolmaster to bring us together, to show us, no, I can't be saved by Lord, law works. That can't save me. There's only one way I can be saved, Christ and nobody else, that you would flee to Christ for salvation. And you have the assurance, friends, that him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast away. God bless his word, let us pray. Eternal <coughs> and most holy God, we praise and thank thee for being together here this day. Bless thy holy word to us. May it have a sanctifying effect on us, drawing us closer to thyself, that our love would be deepened, that we will have a greater desire to be obedient to thee, to glorify thy holy name. Be with us now, O God, and take us our homes and say, bring us back here in the evening. May we again have a sense of thy nearness to us, and bless to us the rest of this day, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Let's now sing to God's praise in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verses 1 to 5. I waited for the Lord my God, and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to hear. Took me from, the fear, from a fearful pit and from the mighty clay, and on a rock he set my feet, establishing my way. He put a new song in my mouth, her God to magnify. Many shall see it and shall fear, and on the Lord rely. 
O blessed is the man whose trust upon the Lord relies, respecting not the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. O Lord my God, full many are the wonders thou hast done, thy gracious thoughts to us, but far above all thoughts are gone. In order none can reckon them to thee if them declare, and speak of them I would they more than can be numbered are. Psalm 41 to 5, I waited for the Lord my God. <coughs> <coughs> I waited for the Lord my God and Thank mm-hmm. you. 
These are the intimations. The evening service at usual time 6.30, the prayer meeting on Thursday at 7.30 p.m., taken by Mr. Ian Martin. The services next Sabbath at the usual times of 11 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. The preacher is still to be arranged. The October witness magazines have now arrived and are on the vestibule table. There are also some of the TBS annual report magazines on the table. These are all the intimations. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. Amen.